0: Aliens of flying Hey, welcome to the 43rd episode of Two Riders Singing Yang. My name is Jeff Perelman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissants Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genres I'm thinking of. And today, we bring to the podcast Elizabeth Weil, the contributing writer to The New York Times Magazine and Outside Magazine. I want to go hyper-specific here. This week, Liz has the cover story of The New York Times Magazine, a riveting profile of the 71-year-old Polish kayaker Alexander Doba. It involved, among other things, a trip to Poland with a 102-degree fever, lengthy interviews via translator, and saying no to all sorts of alcohol. It's fun, and it's funny, and it's 100% journalism, and it's right now on Two Writers Singing Yang. Okay, Liz, th- thank you for doing this. I want to say we just set a record, you and I, because um, usually uh, this it takes about eight seconds for me to figure out how to connect with the other person technologically. But for you and I, um, two writers of about the same age, it took us a solid 15 minutes. So that's a record. For
1: this <laughs> Very proud.
0: Of yeah. That one. <laughs> yeah. We send you a patch and a gold medal at the end. So it's good. So you are the author of a, the, this week's New York Times Magazine cover story called Alone at Sea. And, um, it is about a yeah. Polish kayaker named Alexander Dobay. And this was a freaking amazing story. And you send me the link to it. This is the story of a, uh, a Polish kayaker who, was 70 years old, almost 71, when he decided to <laughs> to kayak from, from New Jersey to France last year. How did you even find out about the story and why did you do it?
1: Well, you know, I read about him uh, a few years ago. So his most recent trip from New Jersey to France was his third time kayaking by himself across the Atlantic. So... After he finished his second time paddling by himself across the Atlantic, he won this National Geographic Explorer of the Year, Adventure of the Year, I forget which it is, award. And I was, you know, freelance journalist trolling for magazine stories. And I saw him and I wasn't interested. I basically felt like, who cares about kayaking? And then I just wrapped up co-writing a really depressing book. Uh, I co-wrote a book about genocide. And I felt like I need to write a happy story. (laughs) I need to like get back to the part of journalism for me that's always been like kind of exuberant and thrilling and all of that. And Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I just, I remembered this guy. I don't even know why. Uh, and then I started reading about him and he'd done it again. And I don't know. It's like he's, he's incredibly compelling looking. Also this time around his photos just. They just struck something in me. And maybe it's that I'm feeling older. (laughs) I think when I read about him the first time around, I was in my my early 40s where I still felt like it young. And now I feel like something sort of, I'm now right in the middle, as we discovered technologically. Uh, And there's something just so exuberant, so kind of wild about him that I was super compelled.
0: So you decide you want to do this story. You're like, okay, I want to do this story. And you are a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. Like, I'm literally interested in the step-by-step. You have this idea. I want to write this story. Then what do you do?
1: Well, if you want the step-by-step. So then I write a pitch. So then I, like, you know, I did a little bit of research. I read around, and I wrote maybe, like, a 400-word pitch. And I really wanted to get the assignment, so I worked hard (laughs) on it. I feel like I'm at a stage in my career now where I can tell which stories are good stories. And if I work really hard on it and there isn't like an overlapping thing, then I can make the odds pretty good. So I felt like I need this. I want this.
0: Now, what exactly? Like, all right, I'm going to pitch this to the New York Times. I'm going to pitch it hard. Like, what is that? Does that mean you're reading 50 articles about him? Does it mean you read one article about him? Kind of surmise it? Like, are you sending it in an no, email? Kind are you of calling in the middle. Her? All right, what do you do?
1: I read maybe like 10. There were lots of little things out there. And I felt like for him, I just needed good detail so that I could like bring him really to life. Because in one sense, uh, kayaking across the Atlantic is really boring. You know, Like (laughs) from one perspective, nothing happens. So I knew I really needed to evoke his character. So I read around enough, which was like not a huge amount because it wasn't a complicated story. Like it wasn't like a big story with big issues that were sort of hard to get a hold of. I just felt like I needed to get a real feel for his character and uh, I needed the details so I could get that on the page. So that was maybe in this case, it wasn't that hard because he's he's one guy, you know, and he's like a really particular guy. So that was like an afternoon.
0: And then do you, do you just uh, fire off the email and hope for the best?
1: <laughs> kind of. I mean, in this case, because I really wanted the assignment, I made a writer friend of mine read it. Mm-hmm. Um, just be like, Is this gonna work? <laughs> and she was like, Yep, that's gonna work. So that's then funny. yes, then I just fire it off to my editor and then she brings it to, you know, the editor in chief. Uh, and then you gotta answer her back. Then they were all psyched. I think the world also right now needs needs a break. Everybody needs like needs a a culture hero, uh and needs something non-political and needs to just sort of get back to all the other parts of life that are getting so buried by politics.
0: Is that is that actually a guiding principle these days in your in what stories you're looking for? Like are you are you a person who is shying away from pieces that have to do with, you know, the five letter word that is our president or political (laughs) issues. Are you trying to stay away from those to keep your sanity?
1: Not explicitly, but that's never really been my thing totally. So the other pieces I'm working on, they're not political. They're not like as cheerful as this one. And I feel like part of what I want to do this week is find myself another really cheerful story. Um, So the other stories are not political, but nor are they like so in the sweet spot of what I feel like I need personally and what I feel like magazines can do. You know, they can be just like great entertainment.
0: Right. You get the go ahead. You don't speak Polish. Have you been to Poland before in your life?
1: Never been to Poland. Don't speak Polish. I kind of downplayed that part in the pitch (laughs) (laughs) that this was going to be complicated and kind of expensive because I was going to need a translator. Like, not only was I going to have to go on this trip, I was going to need support. Mm-hmm. So then there was a guy who was super helpful to me, a Polish kayaker who moved to the United States in the 80s. And he uh, he's in the piece in a very small way. He yeah, helped, so. sort of helped do logistics for Adoba. And I called him, and he was like my fairy godfather of logistics. He's like, this is what you need to do. Here are some names of translators. <laughs> Here's how you get a dry suit to go kayaking. It was, like, so incredibly helpful in trying to set up a reporting trip far away in a country where you don't speak the language. So he was a huge, huge help. And then once I once I had a translator, and I had a really good translator. I had a translator who had been the editor of National Geographic Poland. So I had a guy who understood journalism, who understood Poland, who understood my subject, and I felt, like, very (laughs) taken care of in the sense of, I think if I just had somebody who could translate but didn't know anything else about the worlds I was going into, you know, didn't know adventure sports, didn't know journalism, I think it would have been much harder. So then off I flew to Poland with the flu. I mean that's the other part of this thing it's in the article in a very minor way. I flew to Poland with like the full-on flu with like 102. I was very Wait, when was the world
0: what, what part of your
1: January it? 2nd I flew to Poland
0: okay and you have uh, you have a fever are you the night before are you saying to your husband is your husband like don't do this put it off, put it off or are you just like to hell with him I'm fucking going to Poland
1: you know, he's not, but he's a, he's a journalist too. So he wasn't right. like put it off. It was, it was so hard to set up. Like if it had been easy, like there was a photographer coming along with me, a translator, it was like, not going to be easy to reschedule. Right. So he wasn't saying, don't go, don't go. He was saying like, You know what pharmaceuticals do you need to get you through this experience? My parents, who are you know eighty, they were just like, "You can't go, don't go." And I was like, "Uh, "I have to go." So I got some Tamiflu, I got a lot of hand sanitizer, and I got on the plane and slept the entire way. I got there, I slept for twenty four hours, and then I was like, "Function."
0: Poor Jim McGee, the person in C twenty four C next to you, one with his mysterious outbreak of the flu two days later. Just trying to figure out what happened. how his life went I so terribly so wrong? I was so
1: careful. I feel like I want the world to know that I, I really tried. I don't story. know what happened, but I tried.
0: You got to go after the yeah. story, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, wait. So you, um, you arrive in Poland again. You don't. You have a translator. You don't speak Polish. You have this. You know about this man. You're not a kayaking expert, um, although no. I'm sure you've done your done your research. This may sound dumb, but is there any concern? That this guy isn't going to live up to your expectations. Like you pitch this story, the New York Times is spending a boatload of money for you to do it. They hired a translator. What if you show up and the guy just is kind of boring and sucks?
1: Well, I mean, partly I feel like that's my problem, and mm-hmm. that like I pitched this, I told them he was going to be awesome. And that if externally he's boring and he sucks, then I feel like it makes my job harder, but I still have to do it. You know, I have to find whatever is in there that is not boring and doesn't suck. And clearly there's something in there not boring and that doesn't suck right? because he did these things. I mean, that couldn't have been further from the truth. Like the minute I met him, I was like, this is going to be amazing. This guy's amazing. But I would have felt like I just needed to make it
0: work. What was your first meeting with him?
1: So the basic trajectory is I landed in Warsaw. I slept. I tried to get better. This is in the article in a minor way. This woman came, this like Polish celebrity who was friends with my logistics expert came to the hotel to basically like take me out to lunch. So she takes me out to lunch. She tells me this joke, which is in the piece trying to explain yeah. Dova to me. Uh, then we get back to my hotel and I'm like, I got to sleep for half an hour and then downstairs i meet up with the translator the photographer and basically like doba's manager like this really nice woman who then drove us out to this river in central poland so then we all get in the in the car we all get in her subaru and drive out into like the flatlands of poland and arrive at night and that's where i met doba and he just kind of like ran out to the car to say hello. And he's like, he's just this force of nature. And it was also freezing and he was in a t-shirt. He's like, he doesn't get cold. And he was like a furnace. <laughs> like he gave me this big bear hug. <laughs> like, you are some other kind of person. Like, I'm fluey and freezing and you're just a, like a emanating heat in life.
0: If he knew you had a 107 degree fever, he seems like the kind of guy from reading the story who still would have given you the bear hug.
1: Oh, totally. By that point, right. my fever had broken. <laughs> I no longer had a fever. He totally would have given me a bear hug. And I think part of like feeling like I can't cancel my trip is like I'm going to cancel on this guy because I don't feel good.
0: Right. Like, yeah, right, right, right.
1: That was not okay. Uh, so then we we arrive at this lodge in central Poland, and where I met him at this like kayaking convention. Basically, it was like a a club, like all these. All these poles who love to kayak, who kayak together every year, and they meet up at this lodge place. And we walk into the dining hall, and there's basically like a full-on Polish disco going on. There's an Elvis impersonator. There's a dance contest. This huge guy wins it moonwalking. There are gigantic Smirnoff bottles with like push tops, like like, you would see like for ketchup or something. People are like drinking at a level that, at my best, I cannot. Keep up with. And it was like, everyone wanted me to drink to be nice, you know, to be hospitable. And I was like, no, 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 I I can't, I can't. And and then there, anyway, there was a lot of pressure (laughs) to do that. You know, and then they bring around these like platters of vodka and shot glasses and bread and salt. That's like, you know, their, uh, hospitality ritual. And then you have one drink and then they're like, There's this expression in Poland that now you have to have a drink for the other leg to keep your balance.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's anyway. Then we all went to
1: sleep. In the next morning, we woke up and went kayaking.
0: You're this like you know like me. You're just like this American who doesn't kayak and blah blah blah. Are you at all sort of? um, I don't know. Are you at all intimidated of looking like a wuss? Like you're there with all these kayakers. (laughs) They're all like, this is what they do. They're they're in the cold. They don't care. And you're this kind of, you know, like all of us, you're this kind of soft American, you know, who's been raised with an iPhone and, you know, watching crappy TV. Like, is there a fear of exposing yourself as as what we are?
1: You know, I think that's maybe an advantage of being a female journalist. I didn't feel that at all. I mean, I'm a pretty athletic person, so I didn't Mm -hmm. think that. Yeah, I was going to totally fall on my face. I was also in a double kayak with Doba. So it didn't Uh. really matter what my skills were. I was going to like get a pass. My big worry, frankly, was like appearing in gracious because like food and drink was a really big part of people wanting to welcome me. And they were being so enthusiastically like positive and kind. And they all love Doba and they all love kayaking and they all love Poland. And like they just wanted to you know, embrace me and invite me into this thing. And I was sort of not quite up for it. So I was worried about looking like a wuss in that department, the kayaking. I was more like, I can do this. And I'm also in this double kayak.
0: Before you continue with two riders slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my wife, little Catherine Perlman.
1: I'm not that little.
0: You're four foot 11, five feet. Hey, no, four foot 11, five feet. You're 4'11". I just ordered you a Denver Gold t-shirt from 503 Sports and I got the smallest one possible.
1: Wait, you ordered me a t-shirt? Yes. From 503 Sports? Yes. Okay, I'm 4'11", just get me my shirt.
0: Okay, 4'11", five feet, it doesn't matter because 503 Sports is all about throwback and it has it all. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State, or put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Rick Neuheisel San Antonio Gunslingers jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like little four foot eleven Catherine Perlman and go to 503sports.com and type in coupon code Yang18 to get 10 percent off your first purchase. You do some really interesting stuff here, writing wise. Like it's a really fascinating story, and. There's a passage here that I just love. My, I think my favorite passage in, the, in this, uh, it's really brief. He wrote about one of his trips and he said, the weather was disgusting, humid and hot. Doba tried to sleep during the day, but couldn't. So he tried to paddle during the day and nearly got sunstroke. He kept no schedule. I'm not a German. Always 9 a.m. paddle, he explained. I am Polish. I paddle when I would like. His skin broke out in salt-induced rashes, including blisters in his armpits and groin. His eyes blew up with conjunctivitis. His fingernails and toenails just about peeled off. His clothes, permeated with salt, refused to dry. The fabric smelled horrendous and aggravated his skin, so he abandoned clothes. Like, it's almost like there were two stars of this story, I felt. Like Doba himself, and then the nightmare of Doba's existence in a kayak in the middle of the Atlantic. Um mm-hmm. how do you do that? Like, is it it seems like number one, it's hard enough to capture that stuff when you're speaking with a guy who speaks English. Um how are you able to sort of capture the essence, like get the detail and then the little, the smaller detail and the smaller detail. How are you able to grab all that in the course of reporting this?
1: Well, you know, there were sort of, there were pretty good records. I had help in a couple of ways. There was like a pretty good blog that um someone was doing during his trips. So there was like a record that way. He wrote a memoir in Polish. <laughs> this was another funny part of my reporting. He wrote a memoir in Polish. It was too overwhelming to get anybody to actually translate it for me. So I put this entire book through Google Translate. and
0: Wow, really? Which was,
1: of course, like, yep, yeah, And it came out totally garbled, but with enough clarity that I had better questions, you know, like I would like fingernails would be somewhere, I'd be like, did something happen with your nails? You know, it, it gave me clues, um, for what to ask about. Right. And in a weird way, I would never recommend doing a story where you don't speak the same language as your subject, but it helped keep things like pretty distilled and sort of like a fableistic in a way. Um, that we weren't having these like rambling discourses that it was sort of like just the nuggets. And in some ways that wasn't so bad. And I don't write that much about kayaking in the story right, <laughs>
0: um, right? in a
1: way, you know, that so that I felt like I had enough details and the details themselves are so vivid, you know, they're just these bodily things that even though he's out there in the middle of nowhere, everybody can relate to one of them like everyone's had a rash or everyone's had conjunctivitis or everyone's like lost a toenail but then to then you just kind of put them all together at once and it's overwhelming and otherworldly
0: is it possible to have a good interview with using like i remember when i was covering baseball and one of my early assignments for sports illustrated was Ichiro suzuki of the seattle mariners and mm-hmm. i had to interview itro through his translator so i would be like you know i'd ask a question blah 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 and each row would go, da, 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 you know, 10 minutes. Da, 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 and the translator would say, he is very happy to be here and he likes baseball. <laughs> and I'd be like, wait a sec. What just happened there? Is it Right. Is it possible to have a great interview using a translator?
1: Well, this is where I think having a translator who was a journalist really helped. And mm-hmm. I had said to him, like we had talked about it. I was like, okay, this is what I need. Like, I need good stories and I need his character. Like please don't do the situation that you just said, like, please don't let him like give some impassioned answer to something. And then I just get like the one word sentence with the most basic facts. So that was a huge help. And Doba is also really a storyteller by nature and he loves an audience. So he was, he was happy to like tell his stories in these, in this like slow way, you know, he would like say a sentence or two and then the translator would translate and we would go on like that. So we, it took a long time. You know, the, the reporting went very slowly because, because there was this whole middle step every single time. Mm -hmm. But I think it was okay. I mean, like, do I think I would have gotten a better sense of him if I spoke Polish? Sure. (laughs) I didn't know, of course. But I think, you know, given the situation, he was a good subject. For it. And he's kind of famous in Poland. So he's done a lot of Polish media. So mm-hmm. I think he also kind of knew what I needed. And he really wanted to like do whatever I needed to do. So he was really patient. He really put out. He told me so many stories with so much energy behind them that uh, he like he made it work out and the translator made it work out.
0: So I teach at uh, Chapman University in Southern California. And, um, I always tell my students, like, I always use the example of a soda can. I always say, if you're writing a story, it's not a soda can. It's a dented can of Diet Coke with a black label, and it's half empty, and there's a scratch on the side of the bottle. Details, 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 details. And, and there's a part of this story we wrote. Um, he talked about everything this guy brought on one of his trips, and it was a freaking ridiculous list. It, like, it was so good. It was like one of these jokes that goes on and on and on, and you can't stop laughing because it's so funny. Like, I'm not even gonna read the whole thing, but you're like, two carbon fiber paddles, five spray skirts to cover Doba's body wire paddle, two pairs of kayaking gloves, three pairs of sunglasses, two pairs of reading glasses, ten boxes of waterproof matches, two big butcher knives, one electric desalinator, two manual desalinators. It literally goes on and on and on. The stuff you put in this tiny little kayak. How did you get the did he just have a list somewhere? Or are you literally sitting with him saying, So what did you uh what do you have in there? And and also Why did you think it was important to have all that stuff?
1: Well, that was like the big gift of Google Translate was that list. Mm -hmm. So that list was in his book. It was very clear that like here I was in a list of all the stuff he took. And it was like 85 items long. I didn't include everything. So that was like the gold from that Google Translate thing in a way. And I don't think I could have gotten that really with the translator. Like, maybe I could have, but I would have had to be like, okay, we're going to stand here for an hour (laughs) together next to your kayak, and you're going to piece by piece by piece. And I'm not sure I would have had the patience for that, or he would have. But I included it, like, just for the reasons you were saying, like, you need the scratch-dented soda can of that, like, yeah, it's the details that, that... make it not abstract and make you, like, really feel what this thing was like. And I also thought some of it was just sort of funny. Like, like of course, he has, like, his kayaking gear, but then he has, like, a pumice stone because, of course, your hands get calluses. And so there was, like, even though it's, like, a list and in that sense it's very dry, it's also, I think, pretty humanizing in the end and sort of it is a shorthand to point to all kinds of, like, Issues and concerns, you know, you need batteries for your GPS and you need backups in case, like what if you drop your paddle over the side and it's not tied on? Like, I feel like it gives you like a shorthand to think about lots of scenarios without having to play them all out.
0: You're lucky on Google Translate was working because it could have listed like three dead cats. And, you know, a book on how to kill your gerbils.
1: Totally. And then I also feel like I need to give a shout out to the New York Times magazine fact checkers who are like unbelievably thorough. So like any mistakes that I had in there that got through, they then like get on the phone and double check and are like, did you really have the dead cat?
0: You, you wrote a part here that I really liked. You wrote, um, Uh, his body appears to be assembled from parts belonging to people of vastly different ages. His skin looks 71. His chest looks 50. His hands and forearms look 30, straight off a Montana roper. His hair and beard appear to be taken from a Michelangelo painting of God. As you're interviewing him, do you have a tape recorder going, a notepad in front of you? Are you nodding at things he says while writing your thoughts in your notepad? How are you actually sort of collecting your thoughts as all this and, uh, you know, and chronicling them as all this is going on in front of you.
1: So that's all true. Like I have a tape recorder and I have a notepad, but like that said, that I just like wrote at my desk, you know, that once I'm like back home and it's quiet and I can think about like, well, you know, how do I want to describe this guy? Like to me, that's a job that you don't have to do in the moment. There are certain jobs like you have to do in the moment. If you're going to like describe the room, you have to take notes on the room while you're there. But for, like, a physical description of someone, and I do take notes on that sometimes, but I also feel like with him in particular, he's so, like, physically unique and charismatic Mm -hmm. that, you know, I brought that home with me. And to me, that's sort of more the, like, writerly part of, like, how do I evoke this guy in a sentence? For me, I'm much better able to do back in my office.
0: So I remember when I used to write for Sports Illustrated, my least favorite part was handing a story in. Um, <laughs> two reasons. Number one, I was paranoid about it all. And number two, I hate it. I hate getting edited, which I know sucks, but I really mm-hmm. do hate getting edited. You hand this thing in. Are you full of pride or dread?
1: Oh, dread, mostly. I mean, <laughs> I feel like it's a mix. I mean, sometimes it's 100% dread, and sometimes it's a mix. It's never 100% pride. But I'm always insecure. (laughs) I don't know if that ever goes away. And I always just want to hear, like, right away, like, first of all, I want an email within, like, five seconds that, like, it was received. Like, I know my editor is super busy. I'm just like, did you get the thing? And then I want to email pretty quickly and says, I love it. This is the most brilliant thing I've ever (laughs) read, which, of course, is not what comes back. (laughs) But I want feedback and in fact with this one i really badgered my editor she was like i have some thoughts i'm gonna circulate it and like she sent this very short email and i've been working with her for like a really long time and so and then i was just kind of firing back like come on like <laughs> did you hate it like did you like it come on give, give me something to work with right. here so yeah i don't i don't think i know of a single writer who's not like a needy mess when they turn in story
0: wait so what was the reaction what was the actual reaction to the story
1: so i turned in a sort of draftier draft on this one than i sometimes do uh partly because of like the timing of things and partly because i felt like i got it to a point where like it was very clear what story i was writing and i wanted to make sure that that was okay that i was like writing this voicey thing so she was like yeah it's great i think everyone will really like it And then, like, then she called back after she meets with everybody. And then everyone was super enthusiastic about him. Like, he's such a, he's such a culture hero. And like I was saying, I think the world was, like, people were, like, craving, (laughs) like, a really positive story. So people were really enthusiastic. And the photos were great. So, of course, that, like, makes everybody extra enthusiastic. So it was, like, structurally, we had a bunch of work to do like the my first draft like a lot of the writing was in place but it wasn't organized very well so there was like some figuring out to do there and i didn't have a good ending and you know there were mechanics but it was a pretty smooth process on this one and i you know i think because like some sometimes you just come home with better stuff than others you know so i felt like i had i had good reporting it was also very contained you know it was a profile. There was like one guy I was trying to capture as opposed to like a big sprawling ensemble piece or something with like huge ideas or huge political consequence. It was a little easier to just get the thing that it was working well.
0: I, uh, I've i been scarred ever since I did a profile years ago for SI about Barry Bonds. And I was the first sports illustrated writer to even get Bonds to talk in a decade. And I wrote this story and I was so proud of it and I sent it in and the next morning my editor called at like six in the morning and he said to me, Jeff, if we wanted to give Barry Bonds a blow job, we could have brought him to New York. <laughs> and ever since that day, <laughs> I've been terrified of every editor ever. And I cringe and I, you know, cower in fear.
1: Oh, it's terrifying. I don't, you know, I feel like it just is vulnerable. You make a thing. You know, you're sitting there at your laptop or your desk or wherever you are, and you're making this thing out of words. And it's it, like for me, I suppose there are people who are like so armored that they're just like, I'm great. I know it. Come at me. But that's not me.
0: When's the last time you had an editor crap all over a story?
1: You know, the very last piece I wrote for the Times Magazine which, and I took this long break to write a book, they didn't run because it was too weird. So, (laughs) which was, I wrote this story about this gigantic emerald and all these con men who like were wrapped up in its charms. And it was a totally out of control, wild story. It was not a good fit for the New York Times and that there was, there was no news. It was just too weird and anti-heroic. And I turned in a draft and they were basically like, Huh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great, right?
1: Uh, you could like spend a year trying to rewrite this in a form that worked for us, or you could just take it somewhere else. Uh, so of course that didn't feel great. It wound up, it had a good home and a good life and ran and wired and it was all good in the end. But you know, that's not the reaction you're hoping for. (laughs) You're not (laughs) hoping for a big like, huh, what do we do with this?
0: I would take that over some editor telling you, um, If we want to give Barry Bonds a blowjob, we'll take him to New York, though. I think you win. Well, me too. One. I
1: think hot is an yeah. improvement. over that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like that was my very last piece I wrote for them. And it's interesting to like be sort of in it a little longer and have more perspective and be like, well, that was not a good fit for them. Like right. it was a good story and it found a good home somewhere else. But like to go through the process of trying to get that to fit there would have been miserable for me. It would have been bad for the story in the end, too. It was just not, it was not the right call. So, like, they, they gave me some news I didn't want, but in the end, I think it was
0: the right thing. You wrote a piece uh, earlier, than, well, last year, for Outside Magazine, about uh, the skier, uh, Michaela Schiffrin, which was excellent. Mm-hmm. Like, really, really, really good. And, you know, your lead I have in front of me. Michaela schifrin slept great. She always sleeps great. Then she ate two fried eggs plus toast, no coffee, as she does every morning. Now it's nine a.m. on this bright June Thursday, the fourth day of the third week of her six week early summer training block. Her schedule prescribes a morning strength session. So we drive from her parents house in Avon, Colorado to the Weston Beaver Creek where she works out when she's in town. And then you kind of go into her her workout. And here's what I love about this story. And this is a, I I mean, this solely as a compliment and and I hope it sounds that way. (laughs) I don't think she's that interesting of a person. Like. I've covered a million. Oh, I totally agree. You agree, right? Like her life is pattern and routine, pattern and routine. Same thing day after day. She doesn't really care about Donald Trump and she doesn't care about Bill, you know, Barack Obama. Like she is a skier and that is her life. And I wanted to ask you, you wrote a really fascinating story about her and she's not even that interesting. So when you learn that someone you're writing about, isn't that interesting, how do you approach it?
1: So I was really worried about this one for exactly Mm -hmm. the reasons you're saying. In Michaela's defense, I think someday she might be a fascinating person, but she's been so focused her entire life on this one thing. And part of being the best is like keeping the blinders on. So she's got the blinders on. I'm like, oh, my God. And every article that I was like prepping, you read, it's like all about her taking naps. I'm like, that's what we've got <laughs> <laughs> to go with is naps. So then I just sort of felt like I was going to have to bring it and have a theory. That it wasn't like the kayaker story where he's just so full of life and fascinating details, if you can get those out, you're in pretty good shape with Michaela. I knew that was not gonna be true
0: right
1: so so I dealt with it by deciding like it had to be voicey it had to be about her in the world, not just her, because she is she's too focused an athlete, and athletes. You know, you know, like it's not often the most scintillating stuff that comes out of their mouth. They're like putting their energies elsewhere. So I was a little worried about that one. And I just decided I, I had to come out with a strong theory and a strong voice and sort of describe what it's like to be around her. Because that's kind of interesting. Or I thought it was kind of interesting. And then I guess my other theory of all this is like, I feel like part of my job or the journalist job is like, is to find a way to be interested. So that you can pass that on. If I'm not interested, it's just going to be boring. There's no right. way around it. So I felt like that was actually just part of the work, too, of like, how do I get interested in this?
0: Were you interested I, in her, though?
1: You know, b- the truth is, before I went out there, no. <laughs> like, nope. I'm like, I, I'm i not a huge skier. Uh I was worried about it. I was like, oh, boy, how am I going to do this? And then, so re- as you were saying, like, the first thing I did with her really was go to the gym. And, like, people were just, like, flipping out to be in her presence because she's, like, so perfect physically. Like, I don't mean that in, like, a sense of beauty, even though she's a really pretty woman. She's just, like, she does every piece of her workout with absolute precision. She's incredibly strong. She's incredibly coordinated. <laughs> and all around her in this veil, Weston are all these people who are, like, having to make jokes and whatever just to deal with, like, being... In their lame human body, in the vicinity of her like miraculous human body, and I found that interesting, you mm-hmm. know. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, well, I can write about that. And, yeah. And then I found her mom interesting. Her mom is the most obsessive sports parent I have ever encountered, in this way that. She's just like, well, if there's video out there of every World Cup race ever, why would you not have watched it a hundred times backward and forward if that would help you? Like, she just has this attitude that I found interesting because people don't do that. Even the people who want to be the best in the world, they don't have the patience for that. And certainly their mothers don't do that. So then I was like, okay, I'm interested in that. (laughs) Like, How do I piece together the parts?
0: But do you like, all right, the mom is talking. Like, I remember when I read the piece originally, I was thinking, like, this mom is freaking crazy. Like, she's the Southern California sports parent times a million where Mm -hmm. she – and I wonder, like, is there a – do you have to make a choice to not pass judgment and to not come off as, like, this woman's kind of crazy?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think – and this is partly, like, being a little older, too. I feel like – Unless you're writing about a head of state or something and I don't write those kinds of pieces. Like part of your job is to find a way to love the people. They didn't ask for this, you know, to someone to walk into their house and analyze them. (laughs) So I really do try to find a way to look upon it honestly, but generously if I can. And I'm like her age, you know, I'm not in terms of the world I'm entering into. I'm not I'm not Michaela in this story. I'm Michaela's mom. So it made it a little easier for me to relate to her, I think, whereas I think a younger journalist might just be like, you're a crazy stage parent, period.
0: I, f- I feel like as we get older, we're less interested in bashing and more interested in discovering. Um, were you ever a basher? Were you ever a basher in your career? Like were we ever quick on the draw totally, to sort of be totally. One of the
1: first things I wrote was like a shitty book review. I can't believe I did that. Now.
0: What book was it? Do you remember?
1: I don't even remember. It was just like I was like twenty two. It was so dumb. So I was totally a basher. I totally used to feel like my writing success was the most important thing that could go down there, and everybody else's concerns really had to take a back seat to that. And now I feel like I'm gonna go on I'm gonna write another story, and like these are people's lives. they <laughs> they care. I've got this big bullhorn, and that I really do feel like subjects deserve generosity. They deserve for me to find a way to look upon them with kindness. Uh, like stuff i didn't didn't think about when I was starting out.
0: Do you have the same ambition you had when you were twenty five and coming up?
1: <laughs> you mean, am I as ambitious? Yeah. Or do I want the same thing? I, you know, I, I, this is another thing I talk about too. Sometimes I don't know. Like, like I live in San Francisco. I don't want to move to New York. I like my life. I don't work 24 seven. And sometimes I feel like, why am I not more ambitious? Why am I not pushing harder at all of this? But I have kids, like they're getting older. They're not going to be home forever. So I'm. I don't know if I am as ambitious. I can't really tell. Like, I still have ambition for sure. Mm-hmm. But I also have more constraints on my life, like good constraints. I don't know. How about you?
0: <laughs> well, I feel, you know what I think? I was thinking, you and I are very similar. Like, we both live in California. You're in Northern, I'm in Southern. We both have kids. You see, I've, you know, my daughter's a freshman in high school. She's around the same age as you're. Like, I think what changes. You may have never had this in the, at least not the literal sense. Like when I was in college, my goal, it then sounds so freaking stupid in hindsight. I used to be like, I'm going to be the best writer in America. You know, like I'm going to be the best mm-hmm. sports writer in America. And I, I feel like as you get older, you realize, number one, there is no such thing. And number two, like who gives a shit? Like, I want to enjoy my life. <laughs> I want to write really good stuff. I want, you know what I mean? Like I still have this drive to write and to write well and to do my best and to tell stories. But it's not like a competition. I think that I'm not competitive like I used to be. If you, Liz, write a great story about a kayaker, if I read this story maybe fifteen years ago, I think there's a jealousy to me. Where I read it and I'm like, Oh, right. I wish I wrote that story. And now I'm like, Wow, that's a great story. And that's it. That's as far as it goes. I feel like that's a good change in life.
1: I agree. Like I still get jealous. Like I'm not totally. Yeah, I do too, actually. I was just like, one over do too, that but not. beast.
0: <laughs> But, but not in the
1: same I way. don't, I, not in the same way for sure. And I also feel like, I feel like two things. One, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be like in my mind. It's like, I'm not going to be Joan Didion. Like, that's never going to happen. <laughs> that's just not who I am. And that's okay. You know, and I also feel like there's another part of it too, which is for me at least. And I feel like for, Almost everyone I know, whatever level of success that you have, you just want the next thing, kind of, you know, like that <sighs> the next thing just seems like you sh- like better. <laughs> like it's like, like in some way, it's like, but the other side of the ambition thing, which doesn't go away of like, I now feel like I know that no matter what, it's never going to feel like the end of the road. It's never going to feel like I attained everything I ever wanted to attain. And, and in a lot of ways, that's good, you know, that. That it doesn't all just stop. Uh, but I also feel more aware that I'm always going to kind of feel that way of I want the next brass ring. Right. But at this point, like I'm not going to move. I'm not going to, I don't, I also feel like I'm not going to necessarily do the things another person might do to get it.
0: Right. So you are, um, uh, the last thing I was going to do is offer you, uh, I'm starting a professional kayaking team in Poland and I want to see if you would join me and, uh, <laughs> so- <laughs>
1: think i'm not gonna do that
0: (laughs) (laughs) where's your heart damn it i know (laughs) yeah it's very disappointing i i I love doing these podcasts mainly because like it introduces me to a lot of writers who i wasn't i you know i wasn't that familiar with and and just digging through your archives and reading through your stuff i i just love the way you approach stories i really do and i thought this story was just so ridiculously good so uh you know thank you so much for doing this i i really do appreciate
1: it. well thank you for saying that and thank you for the conversation
0: I want to thank today's guest, Elizabeth Weil, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Liz on Twitter at Liz Weil, that's W-E-I-L, and visit her at elizabethweil.me. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on all sorts of mediums, including iTunes and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the great MC Whiteow. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.